You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, we recall as we turn to Acts chapter 26, verse 24, that Festus is now in the man in charge in Caesarea, where Paul, the apostle, has been imprisoned for over two years. And one of his first orders of business was to bring the Jews who were accusing Paul up from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And after interviewing them, he came to the conclusion that the dispute between Paul and the Jewish authorities was more religious in nature than Roman law in nature. So he offered to Paul to go back to Jerusalem to meet his accusers face to face and have a trial with them. Paul, though, realized that this would mean danger for himself, so he appealed to Caesar. Festus realized that he had no charge to put on Paul to send to Caesar. So he invited Agrippa and his sister Bernice to come and to listen to Paul's testimony so that they could weigh in on it and perhaps give Festus some kind of charge to give to the Caesar. And the reason that he asked Agrippa to serve in that capacity is because Agrippa was actually in charge of the Jerusalem district and had an understanding of Jewish religious matters. Now, as Paul was unfolding his testimony and unfolding the truth of God's word, that that he was being persecuted for the hope of the promise of God in the Old Testament scriptures that the prophets had given, as he was saying these things, verse 24, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So Agrippa was the one that Paul was addressing. Bernice was also listening in, and the crowd was there as well. But Festus, who had organized this whole thing, could not handle it anymore and blurted out, it almost appears, that Paul, you're crazy. All of your learning is driving you out of your mind. In other words, he could tell that Paul was an intelligent person, but he felt that Paul was out of his mind because of the things that he was positing before Agrippa. But I love Paul's response. He said, it says, but Paul said in verse 25, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. One of my favorite parts of C.S. Lewis's children's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is when the four Pevensey children go to their uncle, the professor, and are concerned about Lucy, who has said that she has gone through the wardrobe into the land of Narnia. And of course, Edmund, by that time, had also been there, but Edmund was denying it. And so all of the other three, Edmund and Susan and Peter, they were all believing in their minds that Lucy was mad, that she was crazy. And I love the interaction that the professor has with them. He said, you think that she's mad? You can make your minds up easy about that. 
one has only to look at her and talk to her to see that she is not mad. In it, the professor in his early years had been Diggory, and he had actually gone into Narnia. And so, you know, he just says, look, you know that she's not crazy. Look at her. She's calm. Her demeanor. Uh, Paul, uh, it almost seems, has the same kind of response. I'm speaking true and rational words. I'm a rational person. I'm, I'm a rational man. Do, do I seem to be out of my mind? For the king, verse 26, knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. <clears throat> Paul here again turns his attention to Agrippa. Here he turns his attention to Agrippa from Festus. I think that Paul was sensing something. And now Agrippa is in a bit of a corner. He's in a bind. If he accepts the prophets, then he would be forced to admit Christ Jesus fulfilled the prophets. And I think that this question probably embarrassed Agrippa. You know, he had a reputation to maintain before Festus and all of these other dignitaries. And he may have had private opinions about Paul's message, but he was too in tune with the world and its system and trappings to make those opinions public at this point. And so Agrippa, verse 28, said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He just couldn't see himself as a Christian. I think that he's saying, could you, do you think that in such a brief amount of time, you could turn a man like me into being a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Now, Paul, it seems, it's like he's forgotten his condition altogether. He's not there to defend himself. He's not there to, you know, try to secure his own freedom. He's trying to secure the freedom of Agrippa. He's preaching the gospel hard to this man. And I almost imagine just this man, Paul, that as he's preaching, it's like the chains dissolve from his body. He's standing there in that hall, and it's as if there is not even one sense within him, one feeling within him, that he is a prisoner. He is the freest man in that room as he is pleading with Agrippa to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. This is so often what ministry what preaching the gospel will do to you. It will help you to forget your chain. It will help you to forget your condition, your plight, your malady. How easily we grow depressed and tired and afflicted at the most minor, trivial issues when they come into our lives. Well, Paul was a man with a thick neck, able to endure much in part because his eyes were not upon the self, but upon others. He truly was an ambassador for Christ. Then the king rose, verse 30, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. 
And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is Agrippa's conclusion to what he's heard of Paul. So now the decision is final. Paul must go to Caesar. And it says in verse 1, And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. This tells us that Luke and others are going to travel with Paul on this journey to Rome. Uh, They would go now to Italy. This, of course, had been Paul's desire. He said in Acts 19.21 to the Ephesian elders, I must also see Rome. Uh, This was also Jesus' desire. He told Paul in Acts 23, verse 11, So you must testify also in Rome. This was Paul's heart and Jesus' heart. And now human beings are playing along. This is the sovereignty of God. Now this chapter because they're going to set sail for Italy, is a chapter filled with nautical terms. And I'm not a nautical person, but I'm going to do my best to explain to you as we go through this chapter, these different terms, especially if you're not a nautical person either. Now, the first thing that we see is that these prisoners, Paul with some others, were entrusted to a centurion named Julius, and he is going to become a principal figure throughout the rest of of this journey. Now, centurions all throughout the Bible are spoken well of. In Luke chapter 7, there was a compassionate centurion who had built a Jewish synagogue and had compassion on his servant and also faith in Christ. You might remember Jesus saying of that centurion that he had not found such faith in all of Israel. Then at the cross, there was a centurion who, after seeing Jesus crucified and die, said, truly this man was the Son of God. And then, of course, earlier in the book of Acts, it was a centurion named Cornelius who God sent Peter to to preach the gospel for the first time exclusively to the Gentile world. So Julius now, a centurion, is going to be a central figure here, and we're going to see some good things about this man as the story progresses. And embarking, verse 2, in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So again, Luke is writing and he talks about we, you know, we put to sea. So he probably paid his own fare and got on to the boat. Also, Aristarchus was there. And according to the book of Acts, Aristarchus was from Thessalonica. He had joined Paul in ministry in Ephesus and would now join him on his voyage to Rome. And it's very possible that he had been Paul's fellow prisoner later on when he writes to the Colossian church, he speaks about this man. And the question, of course, that we would ask is, why would Aristarchus want to go with Paul? And we can only imagine that he was so thankful to Paul for his teaching, his ministry, that this was some kind of thank you to Paul that he just could not leave Paul's side. 
Now, it says in verse 3 that the next day we put in at Sidon, which is up the coast from Caesarea, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. This is fascinating because apparently Paul had such a good reputation with Julius that Julius would allow Paul to be set free to go and visit with his friends. It speaks a little of Julius's character, but I think more of Paul's character. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. That's to the north of Cyprus, in other words, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, again along the coast of Cyprus, we came to Myra in Lycia. This is southern Turkey, getting closer and closer to Ephesus. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, so a ship down from the northern African coast, which was sailing for Italy, and he put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, which is further east, getting closer now to Ephesus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon, which would be the south side of this island, and coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was the city of Lycia. So now they're near or on the island of Crete. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, that means it's past mid-October, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So here, Paul begins to, at the very least, share a perception just based on the calendar. It's past now, mid-October, you're heading into the late fall and early winter months, these were not good times of the year to be out on the open sea. And so Paul might have just had a calendar perception, or perhaps he had a prophecy from the Lord, some kind of vision where he knew and perceived this is not going to go well. Well, we're going to be injured. There will be much loss, cargo and ship, and even our lives if we go on. Part of the reason I think that this was just an emotional or calendar-based perception is because part of his perception is that they would lose their lives or that some would lose their lives. And as the story goes on, God will promise him later, there will be no loss of life. But Paul shared his opinion. But the centurion, verse 11, paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So at Fair Havens, this initial place, Paul shared his perception. The centurion did not listen to Paul, but instead listened to the captain and to the owner of the ship. Now, one of the sub-themes of this chapter is that as the journey progresses, 
Paul's voice, which at the beginning was not paid attention to, was given more and more attention as time went on in the journey. In other words, God is going to raise Paul up, not just on the journey, but through the journey. Now, when the south wind blew gently, verse 13, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. In other words, they let the wind carry them along. So they were trying to make it a little bit further east on the island of Crete to get to this perfect harbor, a, a place called Phoenix. And uh, the, the winds just would not allow them. So, and especially because this huge wind called the Northeaster, or I like the New King James or the NASB versions that call it the Euroclidon or Euroquilo, which are just more transliterations of the Greek word, or uh, here just in the ESV, the Northeaster. It just began to drive them. And so they eventually just gave up and they had to let the wind carry the boat along. And running under, verse 16, the lee of a small island called Cauda, or some manuscripts, Clauda or Claudia, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So this larger uh, ship had a skiff or a lifeboat, a dinghy, and apparently it was about to be loosed, and so they, they got it with difficulty. They secured it. And after hoisting it up, verse 17, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, or the Sirtis Sands, these are shallow, unpredictable sands on the northern coast of Africa, so they've been driven very far south, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle, or the ship's gear, overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. The circumstances here out on the open sea had decimated all of their hope. There was no hope in any of them. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They, they all thought they were going to die. Since, verse 21, they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must take stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Now there are a few fascinating things that happen here at this point. All hope is lost. They haven't eaten for a long time. And Paul, interestingly enough, he begins 
this next speech by saying, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and lost. I, I don't know if that was the right thing to say or not, but perhaps it was strategic to help them listen to him now. You didn't listen before, but you should listen to me now. Then Paul begins to testify of an angel of God ministering to him there on the open sea, encouraging him in his heart that that no one would die, that all they would lose would be the ship, that Paul had to testify in Rome, and that no one would die. I've granted to you all those who sail with you, is what the angel said to Paul. This is fascinating because, again, it follows the pattern of Paul's life, and perhaps it's the pattern of your life as well, in that God reached Paul in the lowest times of his life. When Paul was discouraged and fearful in Corinth, Jesus stood by his side and said, I have many people in this city. Do not be afraid. When Paul had been rejected in Jerusalem to the point of arrest and having caused an upheaval amongst the Sanhedrin, Jesus spoke to him and told him that he had done well and that as he testified in Jerusalem, he would also testify in Rome. When Paul had his thorn of the flesh and asked Jesus three times to remove it from him, the Lord appeared to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you. And here on this boat about to die, the Lord sent his angel to speak to him, to encourage him, to comfort him. Now, he's encouraged that there would be no loss of life, that everyone who set sail with Paul would be saved. And I think that this meant that Paul was concerned for everyone on the boat with him. He was thinking not only of himself, but again, of of all of them. And then Paul, in verse 25, said, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. This is a massive step for the person of faith. Not only to hear the promise of God, but to believe the promise of God. Not only to learn the promise of God, but to believe the promise of God. And so Paul now turned his expectation on running aground on some island, and that would eventually be the island of Malta. So, verse 27, When the fourteenth night had come... As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding, which basically would require them to drop a line with lead on it and lower it down. When they took a sounding, they found 20 fathoms, which would be about 120 feet. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, or 90 feet. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So they could tell that it was getting shallower. They were worried that they'd run aground, so they let down anchors and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape, verse 30, from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat, remember the skiff from earlier, into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, the front part of the ship, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So again, this is the third time Paul speaks in this chapter. The first time he gives a suggestion they reject. The second time 
He encourages them. They receive it. Now he's just commanding them. You, you have to cut away that boat. These men can have to stay in the ship. You'll not be saved without them. As day was about to dawn, verse 33, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. So Paul, again, just encouraging everyone here in this final moment, we're going to be fine. Let's eat some food. Let's build up our strength. Not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. I can't promise that those hairs will be dry, but you are all going to survive. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. You know, Paul set the example eating the bread first, and they followed. And Luke records in verse 37, We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So Luke had counted how many people there were. Maybe later, once they got onto land, he counted them again and said, Yep, we're all here. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them into the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. So they've cut off the anchors, they've loosened the ropes, and now they're just letting the wind drive them forward to that beach. Now Malta is the island that they're going to run aground on, and Malta, if you look at it on a map, it is just out in the middle of nowhere. But God drove them there. But striking a reef, verse 41, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So the ship is just, you know, falling apart because the surf is, is just pounding upon it. The boat is stuck. It says in verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And so Paul's prophecy came to pass, and everyone was given safety. Of course, the thing that is so notable at the end of this passage is the way that the centurion treats Paul. He wished to save Paul. He did not want the prisoners to be killed. The tables in this chapter have turned. Paul has become passenger number one of 276. And the reality, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is that God had elevated Paul through his trial. He had been experiencing death for Jesus' sake, but the life of Jesus was being manifested in his mortal flesh. He was confident that if, if his earthly home was destroyed, he had a building from God. And I think that what was seen outwardly by the centurion and others was the evidence of the inner work of Christ in Paul's heart. And that inner work of Christ was so beautiful that eventually Paul curried the favor of the entire crew, the entire ship. We'll see in chapter 28 the great effectiveness of Paul on the island of Malta. 
But would to God that you and I, as we pass through trials and difficulties, that we would pass through them with such success that we gain an ear, we gain an opportunity in the lives of the people around us by the way that we pass through the trials of life. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.